We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. The Oracle Network. Welcome to Ye Old Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I am your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. Hi. How's it going? It's going. Just as I predicted, March decided to splooge snow all over us. Splooge. That's a That's a descriptor. term. We got like six inches here. So I was in Wisconsin briefly, and they didn't get that much snow. They have more ice than snow. When we got here, it was like, oh, dang. <laughs> like it snowed. So I got to get the snow blower out this morning. And then like I was halfway through one stripe in the middle of the driveway before it ran out of gas. And I was like, cool. But thankfully, we had some in the garage, so I was able to refill Good. it. But now I just need to remember to go to the gas station and fill up the canisters so that doesn't happen Mm -hmm. again because i'm sure this won't be the last one all right so we're continuing wicked mock madness Mm -hmm. and this week we are going to be discussing chocolate spells of latin america okay are these like love chocolates and like my man is my man chocolates (laughs) sometimes I'll dive, I'll dive into it. Okay. So information was pulled from the following sources. A 2020 Atlas Obscura article by Reina Gattuso. A 2018 Vice article by Ida Yu. A 2013 Journal of Pan-African Studies article by Rhonda M. Gonzalez. A 2012 Artes de Mexico Journal article by Margarita de Oradana. And lastly, in 1986, University of Michigan, academic paper written by Ruth Behar. And nice. that one, I only got halfway through it before we had to start recording. Oh, no. But I kind of stopped because a lot of the stuff that came later wasn't relevant to what we we're discussing today. But it was still a very mm. interesting article. So, so check it out in the show notes. If you got time to read a 21-page academic paper, check it out. I mean, of all of, in terms of academic papers, I feel like that would be top top of the list of most interesting academic papers to read. Well, it's called "Sex and Sin, Witchcraft, and the Devil in Late Colonial Mexico." So, yep, it's it's a yep. pretty interesting read. Yep. And links to that and everything else are in the show notes. Awesome. It may surprise you to learn that chocolate has not only been around for thousands of years but was also once considered a vehicle for magic potions. That checks out. I feel like chocolate and wine. Mm Mm-hmm. You just, like, mix. Mix, mix, mix. Mix things in it. Magic happens. (laughs) (laughs) The magic. Just as coffee is a morning staple for many people the world over, hot chocolate was once, and in some places still is, considered an everyday drink. Interesting. It was also, according to records in the Inquisition archives, a tool for women's magic potions. Ooh. 
love potions. (laughs) Indigenous people have harvested cacao in the Americas for at least 3,000 years based on the fact that chocolate residue has been found on Mayan vessels from as early as 250 BC. I love that. Right? Somebody didn't wash their hands. (laughs) They were eating chocolate. No, no, no. It was found. It was like a special cup. Because I saw the article about it. I didn't put the specifics of all of that because it was very involved. But apparently it was a, a cup specific for a particular person that had residue inside the cup from the hot chocolate they would drink. That's so cute. Right? And that's also like really intense chocolate if the residue is still there. Mm-hmm. That's good chocolate. That's good mm-hmm. cacao. Dang. Yeah. Once upon a time, hot chocolate was a drink reserved for the elite, such as diplomats. 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 <laughs> diplomats. <laughs> diplomats. God, I cannot talk today. <laughs> diplomats served to couples as part of their marriage ceremony, and it was also provided at funerals. That makes sense. Especially, like, if you think of cacao, isn't it relatively hard to harvest and source? It's a seed and a bean, yeah. Yeah. I feel like because it's such a labor-intensive thing and it's also like very finicky with its climate, that it Mm -hmm. makes sense that it would be for special occasions only. Mm -hmm. When the Spanish came to Latin America and started colonizing New Spain, they found the drink to be fascinating due to the caffeine boost as well as the smooth flavor. Mm -hmm. But for as interesting as it was, they were also very wary of it, considering how it tied in with indigenous rituals. Oh no, it's not, it's not godlike enough. It's not Catholic enough. Cacao was also used as a form of currency and legal tender in ancient Mexico. Nice. One cacao bean could be used to purchase a ripe avocado, a large sapote, I don't know what that is and I forgot to look, a tamale, or a decent-sized tomato. We would do that with chocolate in in grade school. <laughs> like, whoever had, like, Oreos or something, they got whatever they wanted as a mm-hmm. trade. You want my sandwich? Sure, have my yeah. sandwich. You want two sandwiches and a fruit roll-up? You got it, dude. And like any form of currency, even cacao had its own brand of counterfeiters. What? In order to make quote-unquote, new-looking cacao seeds, counterfeiters would employ a number of methods. Toast old, dry seeds to make them look new and fresh. Submerge seeds in water so they would look shiny and they would swell. Mm -hmm. Bake them over hot ashes and cover them with clay. No. Yeah, I don't like that one. Or simply mix smaller ones with the bigger seeds so you wouldn't know. Yeah. So if you want an idea of how much money could be made in cacao. Juan de Torquemada noted that Nezua Coyotl spent nearly 2.74 million cacao beans each year, while his cousin, Mao Takuzuma Kuchotzin, had warehouses that were home to just over 960 million cacao seeds. So I'm trying, wait, so how are we equating it? Is it like a dollar a cacao or what are we? Yeah, I mean, if you consider how much you could get with one seed, like 
That's an insane amount of seeds. So basically, <laughs> yes. you were like king of the cacao seeds. You were king. Of, you were king of the hill. King of the hill. Along that vein, would you be surprised if I told you that the Spanish stole cacao? No, they didn't do any of that. No, they were fine. They just like visit and they're like, hey, this place is really cool. Thanks for the hot chocolate. Bye. Pedro de Alvarado <laughs> and his forces stormed into Malta Cuzoma's palace and the royal vaults before walking away with 43 million cacao seeds. That's atrocious. This theft was one of the largest, only surpassed by a fleet of British pirates who attacked Hualtulco and stole 340 tons of cacao beans. That really sucks. I bet that was just completely devastating to that community. Probably. That's like taking everybody's crops. Mm-hmm. And TV. And then kicking the dog and taking the dog. <laughs> I hate that dog. Just kidding. It's mine now. <laughs> You're coming with me. <laughs> oh my god, what? Dang. Did they even know what to do with them, though? Did they know what to do with the cacao seeds? Or did, were they just, like, taking them? The British? Yeah. Like, what do they know about cacao? I, I didn't dive into the article because I felt like it was too off-topic. But apparently, part of how chocolate hot chocolate made its way into England was through British pirates. Like, they would take it back to England. And it was the same with the Spanish. Like, they would bring stuff mm -hmm. back to Spain. And so that's how it became a really, right. like, high-end thing in Spain. But the same thing happened to the English, only it was the pirates that were providing it instead of, like, the hoity-toity Spanish. So the Spanish conquistadors. Maybe I'll do that in a different episode. I can just see them, like, totally messing it up. But like, it's like tea. <laughs> oh, no, man. No! <laughs> we'll actually go into it. That dog is crying. <laughs> He's telling you it's not right. No! No! <laughs> Fun fact. I just burped. Although all genders <laughs> enjoyed the beverage. <laughs> Fun fact. I just burped. <laughs> All right. Fun fact. Although all genders enjoyed the beverage, only women prepared this delicacy. The chocolate would be prepared by drying, roasting, and grinding the cacao beans before they would be mixed with water and spices, typically vanilla and red-tinted annatto, which is, could be compared to like paprika, turmeric, saffron, or cumin. Okay. This paste would then be shaped and stored in blocks. And the drink would be made by combining the paste with hot water and beating the drink until it foamed. I suppose you could equate that to like what we consider Mexican hot chocolate if you're adding a spice to it. Mm -hmm. But why would you add a spice to it? I don't know. Another recipe practiced by the Nahuas was that cacao would be mixed with honey as well as herbs and flowers to produce atlas quetzali or precious water. Yeah, that sounds better. I want to go to that coffee shop. I'd pay $12 for that. There you go. There you go. Not only was the drink delicious, but it had cultural significance as well. The indigenous Mesoamericans viewed the warm red liquid as a representation of life itself. Mayan women were said to drink it to give themselves strength during childbirth and menopause. Aww. Aztec Emperor Mautkazoma 
apparently drank chocolate in order to have success with women. Caffeine. I mean, it, it is messing with the blood vessels, so that makes sense. It is a stimulant, so. Mm-hmm. So the Mayan people would cultivate cacao, vanilla, and annatto with, in this, with the same crop systems, so like in a single plot. And this oh, is similar nice. to how maize, squash, and beans would be grown together in a single plot. Nice. It's like a full meal in a field. <laughs> Sweet. And as I mentioned earlier, this drink was red in color. And Fernandez de Oviedo noted that it would stain the teeth and mouth of the Mayans, giving the appearance that they were drinking blood. Which is why they thought that they were savages. Mm-hmm. And that they had sacrifices and stuff, which, I mean, technically, they still might have, but, like, they were just really enjoying chocolate, guys. Mm -hmm. So this link between health and vitality and chocolate continued well into the colonial era until the Spanish banned it after defeating the Aztecs and the Mayans. Why would they ban it after they conquered the people that cultivated it? They prohibited its use along with several other ritualistic Aztec plants, such as hallucinogenic mushrooms. Okay, they hate fun. I just, come on, guys. (laughs) So that didn't mean that the Spanish wouldn't consume it. You just couldn't use it for religious purposes. So you could still drink it. You just can't do anything. You can't do it in a church. You can't do anything religious with it or ritualistic with it. Because then that's against God. Okay. Gross. In Mexico City, it was noted by Manuel Aguilar Moreno that the locals who had recently been converted to Christianity would leave offerings of cacao as tributes in front of images of Christ. Aw, because it was so valuable to them. Mm-hmm. Aww. In Santiago de Guatemala, which is now present-day Antigua, Guatemala, Many peoples of several races regularly consumed chocolate prepared by women who had learned how to prepare it from neighbors or indigenous servants. So, like, the nice. recipe was kind of, like, passed down from generation yeah. to generation. And kind of as consistent as possible. hmm Chocolate was such an integral part of Latin American culture that priests would drink it while meeting with their faithful followers. Husbands would expect a cup every morning from their wives and hospitals would even stock it for their patients. Yeah, it's a comfort thing. Mm-hmm. Nice. Well, and it was supposed to have, like, health benefits. Mm-hmm. If you love someone, you're going to give them that drink. Mm-hmm. Starting in 1580, African laborers were transported to New Spain, a.k.a. Mexico, mm-hmm. to work as free or enslaved laborers to replace all of the indigenous peoples that the Spanish had basically wiped out. Sounds about right. This labor was needed to work in mining and agriculture, a.k.a. produce more cacao. Produce those, those HelloFresh fields. Yep. <laughs> ready, ready to crop. <laughs> By the mid-16th century, the number of people in, of African descent outnumbered the Spanish in New Spain. Not only that, they comprised the second largest slave population in the Americas. Hmm. Which is gross. Cacao production in Chantalpa and Soconusco areas suffered threats from pirate attacks, even under the monarchy's protection. And this is one of the areas that was hit by the British pirates. Many had to abandon their plantations, which would then be scooped up by the Spaniards 
to be run by them instead. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Chocolate became a staple of the culture that was growing and thriving in Latin America. People of different races, such as Africans, Spanish, the indigenous peoples, and those of mixed race all enjoyed partaking in it. Mm-hmm. By the 1600s, the number of Europeans that made up the population of Santiago de Guatemala was only about 15%, with those of mixed race making up the bulk of the population, which makes sense because they're all like mixing with one another. Yeah. Knowing that they were outnumbered and terrified of any sort of uprising, the Europeans imposed several laws against those who weren't white, such as curfews and laws prohibiting those of African descent from dressing like the local population or wearing jewelry. God, we suck, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we just, come on, man. (laughs) Like, (sighs) It wasn't just new laws meant to restrict those of different races that were imposed. The Spanish also used their alliance with the Catholic Church to institute another form of punishment to keep the locals in line, the Inquisition. For those who are unfamiliar with the Inquisition, here's a short rundown. In the 1200s, the Catholic Church formed a group of religious courts, or tribunals, with the sole purpose of weeding out anyone who practiced anything that was considered heresy. This was lovingly dubbed the Inquisition, and not only spread across Europe, but the Spanish brought these practices with them when they colonized the Americas. Can you just give them a pre, like a quick thing of what heresy is as well, just in case people don't know? Heresy is basically anything that goes against God's teachings. Yeah. So essentially anything that is part of any sort of indigenous or other races, cultural traditions, basically. Yeah. It was a huge practice. And beliefs. In Europe. Yep. Very huge practice in Europe to defeat pagans. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Colonial witch hunting began in the 1500s and was a barbaric practice used to primarily target those of elite status within the indigenous population. According to Martha Few, who is a Penn State history and gender studies professor, as well as an author, quote, there was burning at the stake and extreme violence against native people, end quote. Sounds about right. By the late 17th century, after the defeat of the Mayan and Aztec elites, the Spanish turned their sights on the mixed race of colonial society. Their goal was to eliminate pre-Christian practices while rewarding those who had converted to Christianity by educating them. Hmm. I'll educate you with my knife. (laughs) Additionally... Those who had converted but continued to practice their own cultural beliefs that went against the teachings of the church could find themselves severely punished. That makes sense. Can't be halfway in, you have to be all in. When the Mexican Inquisition officially started in 1571, one thing was expressly forbidden. The persecution of the indigenous peoples, who were too new to the faith and therefore should be forgiven for slipping up and mistakenly committing acts of heresy. So the only people that would be persecuted were those of mixed race, those who were Spaniards who should know better, quote unquote, and those of African descent. So you're going to be punished for not knowing what you're supposed to know. Correct. And what you've done for generations and generations. Yep. Cool. That was my next thing. So only those of Creole or Spanish descent, Mestizos, those were mixed with Spaniards and the indigenous peoples. And later, those of African and mixed races 
could be brought before the Inquisitors. Awesome. But if you were a full-blown Indigenous person, you could not. Mm. You were given a hall pass. That's like the smallest. The smallest of hall passes. Yeah. However, this was harder to do than the Spanish anticipated. Remember how their numbers were much lower than the rest of the population? Yeah, 15% or less. No, it was, yeah, 15% of colonial, but those could still be some yep. people that would mess up. And it wasn't just in colonial America that the Spanish were having issues policing people. In their native country, their attempts to snuff out any practice of Judaism and Islam were also failing. Good. Yeah, screw you guys. As we've seen so often in the past, because history has a nasty way of repeating itself, women were the main targets during the Inquisition. They interacted daily in markets and kitchens with other women of Spanish, African, mixed race, and indigenous descent. Can I friends? They often consulted with indigenous healers and shared their homemade cures with one another. Yep, can't As be doctors, do. can't have friends. Yep. Don't fix it. Don't be a friend. But also like, mom, can I have a hot chocolate? Yep. From God. <laughs> God's chocolate. <laughs> hey, mix it with wine, blood of Christ. There you go. As we know, being a healer was a dangerous thing, as it was yeah. so easy to be targeted as a witch for this practice. Yep. The act of healing was traditionally conducted by women, and the act of accusing and punishing those women to keep them in check was, to some degree, primarily conducted by men. Yeah. Many of the cases that were brought before the Inquisitors centered around, you guessed it, chocolate. Remember. This was a drink consumed daily that was only prepared by women. Yep. Martha Few is quoted as saying, quote, Men would complain that women were bewitching them through food, and they were always suspicious of what they were served, end quote. People still say stuff like that. Have you noticed that? Mm-hmm. It's annoying. However, the fear of being poisoned wasn't enough to encourage men to prepare their own drinks. That was women's <laughs> work. Right. Yeah, like, I don't want to make it, but also, I might murder you if you make it too well. <laughs> yep, don't bewitch me. Right. I love you, but not enough to not murder you. In fact, in many areas of central Mexico, when women were allowed to work, they only had four jobs available to them. That of healers, midwives, domestic servants, and vendors of food and alcohol. So you you had like a hundred percent chance of being murdered because of your job. Oh yeah, hundred percent chance. Oh yeah, and also a hundred percent chance of being accused of being a witch. Mm-hmm. Nice. So this doesn't mean that chocolate was just a drink that had magical properties. Okay. A mulatto man named Mateo de Meados used cacao as part of a talisman when he buried a pot that was filled with, quote, garlic, rosemary, chili, chocolate, contrayerba, which is the name that's given to several herbs that are considered like antidotes, okay. as well as two needles in the shape of a cross, end quote, in order to ward off any evil that may be wished upon him. That just sounds like it would all become a really good sauce, too. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he later... He invented mole. <laughs> <laughs> and it was delicious. And it was amazing. The fear of being poisoned motivated 33-year-old Juan de Fuentes 
a mixed-race construction worker, to approach the Inquisitors regarding his wife, Cecilia. He claimed that she had bewitched away his masculinity, as he was no longer able to maintain an erection. And not only that, he was compelled to prepare hot chocolate each morning for his wife's enjoyment. And obviously, the act of serving your wife breakfast in bed could only be a tool of the devil. Right. The tribunal quickly had her imprisoned. I can't even. This is making me white girl out. I can't. I can't handle it. This is the same argument of like, you're making me fat. And because I'm fat, my body isn't working normally. Because my body isn't working normally. I can't do the things I want to do, so I want to learn how to make chocolate. I didn't make chocolate right. Uh, die. Like, mm-hmm. what? How? It will come as no surprise that many of the women accused of serving cursed hot chocolate to men were often single or widowed and active members of society, most likely by working in markets. These women were accused of using potions to cast off their traditional roles of being a wife and mother to assert their sexual dominance. <gasps> Oh, no. How dare you? You mean there are other things beyond being a wife and mom? No. Witchcraft. Death. (laughs) A mother-daughter pair were reported to the local authorities as witches by their slave. Francisca de Agreda, who was a wealthy mulatto widow of African and European descent, along with her daughter Juana, mixed their nail clippings and pubic hair into a cup of hot chocolate that they intended to serve to Juana's love interest, the local village priest. Gross. Thankfully, their slave reported them and they were arrested before he was able to drink that. Yeah, I'd call the police too. (laughs) Just because I'd be like, that's gross. Hello, hello, ye old health inspector. Please fix this. <laughs> this is this is fucked. <laughs> I don't want to get fired, but like she put toenails in it. Like, calm. <laughs> get over here, post haste. <laughs> wee woo, wee woo. Sad. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> that I understand. Yeah, definitely not cool. Don't do that. Maria de Santa Enes, who was described as a, quote, one-eyed, dark-skinned mulata, end quote, was given the nickname La Panacito, or the pastry, for allegedly feeding her enemies chocolate she'd perform magic on. In fact, several neighbors testified that she had evil intentions. Okay, like, was it so good that it was bad, or did she too do fucked up things like put her pubes in some chocolate and was like <laughs> here you go Marilyn <laughs> by the way your hedges are horrible <laughs> I hope you choke on a pube so I can <laughs> trim those <laughs> I don't know they didn't mention pubes in her chocolate in this one. <laughs> sorry I don't know sinfully delicious mm-hmm <laughs> Dona Luisa de Galvez met with an indigenous healer named Anita to find a way to get her husband to stop beating her. Oh. Yeah, a lot of these later on will involve domestic domestic violence, so I'll try to remember to give a trigger warning. She was advised to wash her genitals with water and mix the water with magic green and cinnamon-hued powders to prepare a cup of hot chocolate for her husband. Healer Anita was sent to jail. 
for telling her to do this. I mean, but like, don't. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't it be like a typical beverage anyway? <laughs> no. Married? No. Okay. This tastes familiar. <laughs> I can't quite put my finger. I on don't it. know why. <laughs> Melchora de los Reyes, a young mixed-race woman, was left alone, shamed, and possibly pregnant after she gave her virginity to her lover. She was a doncella, or a virgin, which made her eligible for marriage in the strict Catholic society of Santiago de Guatemala. After having sex, and with her lover tossing her aside, she was no longer considered marriable, so she consulted a sorcerer to help her. She was given special powders to mix into her lost lover's morning cup of hot chocolate so that he would fall in love with her and submit to her will. Melchora did just that and was then arrested by the colonial inquisitors. Why? Did he, like, not like it? Or, like, how did they find out? I don't know. Hmm. Some of these, I don't know who. That's so sad. Because, like, during that time, that would be terrifying. Like, your life is done. You went Mm -hmm. from... Possibly living like a a semi-secure, stable life to being Mm -hmm. homeless and... Yep. Yeah. Ugh. That poor girl. In 1614, Maria Vasquez was living in Salea, I think that's how you say it, Michoacana, as a free African woman. She was reported to the Inquisitors after a child had died in her care while she had been providing treatment. Oh, no. On October 25, 1614, Maria, along with two other women and one man, Isabel Duarte, Maria de Torres, and Juan Garcia, were reported to the Inquisition by Isabel Maria, a 27-year-old that was enslaved by Torres. Isabel Maria reported the three, who were Spaniards, for practicing witchcraft and palm reading. Isabel told the Inquisitors that Vasquez frequently visited the home of Torres, and she witnessed them often having intense discussions that would sometimes result in them sharing homemade remedies, some of which were mixed in with chocolate to soften Vasquez's husband's temperament to get him to stop beating her. So how dare they, one, be friends. Again, that's one of the cardinal sins, can't be friends. Number two, don't share recipes because you're not friends. Mm -hmm. And three, chocolate is the devil. Don't. She also explained that Juan, the male accused, was a palm reader and that Duarte was known for giving a young girl herbs in order that she could give them to her parents who were opposed to her marrying. Man, these people just want others to be reasonable. Yep. And they're giving them chocolate. Like, that's pretty cool. If somebody Mm -hmm. would be like, hey, I know we don't see eye to eye. Here's some really good chocolate that I made. I'd be like, man... Are no, there pubes in Like, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> is, is there a toenail in this? Should I Can be I worried? have an ingredients list, please? And thank right. you. <laughs> That's what the Inquisition is. It's the CDC. <laughs> Can it's I have the, the nutritional information, administ- please? It's the Food and Drug Administration. That's the Inquisition. <laughs> <laughs> this is not organic. <laughs> Death. <laughs> The very next day, on October 26th, another of Torres's enslaved women, a 60-year-old African from Padalona, Spain, named Maria Hernandez, also came forward to announce the three accused. She corroborated Isabel's story, 
adding that she had witnessed Vasquez spending two nights at Torres's home, where at one time Torres's child had been present and given a half-folded piece of paper that had an image of a saint on it. She went on okay. to say that she witnessed them praying over an altar that had burning incense. On another occasion, Torres was given some folded paper that contained a substance she was to mix with her husband's hot chocolate in order to bind him. When asked if she knew what the substance was, Hernandez claimed that it was what appeared to be small white bones and wings. We'll get into that now, later. Okay, that's, let's not do that. We'll get into that later. She okay. was also sent on several occasions by Torres to the home of Vasquez to retrieve items from her. Another witness came forward that same day, a single 40-year-old woman of African and Hispanic descent named Inez Maria, who was Torres's neighbor. She claimed that at one point Torres had some items stolen from her home, two sheets and a silver spoon, and upon discovering this, she enlisted the help of an indigenous man who used his divination skills to tell her who had stolen from her. Inez also corroborated Hernandez's story about the altar and the two women's association with Juan the palm reader. Interestingly, Inez herself was a known healer, but she failed to disclose this information while in front of the Inquisitors. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Super interesting. It later came out that mm -hmm. between October 21st and 23rd, so four days before she was brought to court, five other Spaniards had reported Vasquez to the Inquisitors for the same offenses of witchcraft. Court records indicated that a total of 13 people came forward to denounce her. With the exception of the three women of African descent, the Torres's two enslaved women, and her neighbor Inez, all the other accusers were Spaniards, two of which were men. Interesting. I'm sure they talked a lot about witchcraft mm -hmm. to the male Spaniards. During several testimonies that took place between October 21st and November 4th, 1614, Many of the people in her community and Salea, oh, why didn't I translate this again? Michoacana accused Vasquez of committing heresy for the past six years. A woman named Francisca de Zamaro, who was the first to accuse Vasquez back on, back on October 21st, stated that she was responsible for the death of her daughter via witchcraft six years prior. Interestingly, she noted that Inez was a healer and had been present during the work that led to her daughter's death. It was six days after Francisca's testimony that Inez had come forward with her own accusations against Vasquez. Hmm. It's unclear why all of these people waited six years to report her, but there are theories. In the case of her enslaved workers, it would be a way to be free of their master should she be found guilty. It's true. Wouldn't, wouldn't they just go to some other home? Like, wouldn't they, because would they be free or would they not be free? I don't know. I don't know how that worked, and that makes me uncomfortable thinking about. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, are you free? I don't know. Or maybe okay. it was worth the risk to see if they could find somebody else to belong to. I don't know. Hmm. In the case of Inez, who was a known healer, it would be a way for her to gain more business, considering Vasquez was yep. unlicensed and unsanctioned. Yep. Competitor. Everyone knew that Inquisitors would have viewed her remedies as acts of heresy, hence the secrecy regarding their meetings. But since they were renouncing her and their activities with her, they were granted an edict of faith, which absolved them of any wrongdoing. So even though they went to her for these remedies and all these cures and things like that, 
which normally would make them an accomplice to witchcraft, because they renounced her, their slates are wiped clean. So that's why a bunch of people did that. Mm -hmm. Because they were like, I don't want to be accused of heresy. And if I throw her under the bus, I'm good. And confess for doing wrongdoings and like do penance and stuff, then I'm okay. Yep. This edict of faith was a popular tactic amongst accusers and had been noted as far back as 1571 when that law first went into effect. Mm-hmm. As for Vasquez, she was a free African woman who no doubt turned to healing as a way to make a living for herself. Right. Like, what else does she know except for everything she's been taught for years and years? Mm-hmm. In 1652, Leonor Ontiveros was a 40-year-old member of a labor hacienda in San Martin. She was a free mulatta woman who worked as a seamstress for Antonio Gonzalez. She was brought into custody by the Inquisitors because of her reputation of being a witch. In Leonor's case, it was the Inquisitors that initiated the inquiry, not the accuser, which was extremely rare, as that meant that the Inquisition was responsible for paying for the trial. So it must have been a big deal to them. Yeah. Leonor's trial was similar to Vasquez's in that both Spanish and African witnesses who had known her for many years and utilized the products she sold them to make cures came forward to denounce her. Hmm. The difference was that Leonor had been sent to the Inquisitor's secret prison in February of 1562. She also gave a lengthy testimony between May 22nd and June 15th, 1562. The Inquisitors also received testimonies from at least nine accusers. Leonor was very guarded and careful with her testimony. She stated that she had once been enslaved, but was now a free mulatta woman who worked as a seamstress. She had also been married to a man from a reputable family named Miguel Sanchez de Orduna, who had been a captain during the Tepehuan Revolt in 1616-1620. He had transported goods, but left her, and she had not seen him since the great floods in Mexico City, so she could not tell the court where he was. She wasn't sure if he was dead. She wasn't sure yeah. if he was still alive and living somewhere else. Leonor was also required to share her lineage, which she did. Her father had been a Spaniard, and her mother an enslaved mulatta born in Salea. Leonor herself had two sons, the youngest of which was 20, and she confirmed that she had been baptized Catholic and regularly went to Mass and confession. Her testimony did link her to the accusations placed against her. In court records, she was noted as helping a number of people, sick children, women who wished to tame their aggressive husbands, and that she worked with a network of others who helped her get the materials she needed in order to heal people. While her accusers acted as if what she did was witchcraft, she noted that each of the instances in which she asked for materials or in which she gave materials were transactions, nothing more. They would ask for things, and she would deliver them. Good on you. (laughs) She was smart. (laughs) I really like her. (laughs) The items included herbs, teas, and chocolate. She even went Mm -hmm. as far as explaining that she even instructed others on how to obtain and make the very things they were asking her for. She seemed to have some idea of who her accusers were, as she was never told and made a point of stating that she was a respectable member of her community, a good mother, and a seamstress who just helped people in the way she knew how. Nothing more, nothing less. In 1662, Felipa Angola, an elderly African slave who lived in San Augustin de las Cuevas, 
was arrested for divining the location of some stolen items. This happened after she had made a trip to a small shop to purchase butter, honey, and tobacco. The shopkeeper, Isabel Gutierrez Carasquillo, stated that she and her family had known Felipa for a long time, at least 15 years. Okay. Because she was, she was elderly. Mm-hmm. It was while she was in the store that Isabel and her son, Joseph Tello de Meneses, asked Felipa if she could help them determine who had stolen their mule. Felipa told them she would need some time to divine this, as the powers she stated had been, had been granted to her by the Virgin Mary while she was in her, her mother's womb couldn't be turned on and off at will. Interesting. So, so her magic is from Christianity. Mm-hmm. That's what she said. Okay. The pair understood, and she told them she would give them an answer when she returned the following Friday to purchase more groceries. This seemingly innocuous exchange probably would have stayed under wraps had another customer not been in the shop when Felipa returned the following Friday when she delivered the answers that Isabel and her son had been waiting for. Dona Antonia Ramirez, who was Joseph's mother-in-law, was also in the shop. Antonia had heard about Felipa when she was young, as Felipa was very old, and about how she had previously been censured by the Inquisitors some time ago. So she'd already been brought before the Inquisitors once and let go. That's not good. So she should be careful. Antonia had warned her son-in-law and his mother about taking Philippa's word at face value, as she believed that Philippa herself had stolen the mule. When Antonia learned that Philippa would be in the shop on Friday to reveal who had done it, she made a point of being there as well. Antonia badgered Philippa about the mule and ordered her to tell her what she knew about it. Philippa was insistent that she could only tell Joseph about what she had discovered. Isabel told Philippa that Joseph was in the house and she was allowed to enter to speak with him. Antonia followed her and Philippa whispered to Joseph that a close family friend named Luis Cabello had stolen their mule and sold it. Afterwards, she asked Joseph to keep the information to himself as she was worried that Luis would come after her for sharing what she knew. Joseph agreed to keep her secret. Because, I mean, she's an old woman. I'd be afraid that someone's going to come get me, too. Right, especially if it's that's a big deal, stealing a mule and selling it. Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's food and resources for a very long time for a family. Mm-hmm. Antonia wasn't having it and told Isabel and Joseph that they were being taken in by Felipe's lies. She continued that Felipe was in league with the devil and that the pair needed to renounce her to the Inquisitors. So on March 18th, 1662, around 15 days after Philippa told Joseph what she knew, four accusers made their way to the offices of the Inquisitors in Mexico City, with two more witnesses coming forward on March 20th. One after the other came forth to state what they had seen and heard regarding Philippa's powers of divination. Mm-hmm. Philippa was revealed through these numerous testimonies to be a well-known woman who had helped several clients over her long life. She was also very aware of the trouble she would be in should she be called out to the Inquisitors, considering she had already been warned once before. So she was still willing to help people despite the risk, mm-hmm. which is a sign of a good healer, generally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one could argue a good Christian for helping her neighbors. Mm-hmm. Yep. In February 1709, Isabel de Tovar 
who was a 40-year-old Spaniard and native of Texcoco, voluntarily brought herself before the Holy Office in Mexico City to denounce herself and Agustina de Lara for acts that could be considered superstitious. Agustina was a 45-year-old Spanish midwife and healer. Eleven years prior to coming before the court, Isabel had an illicit friendship with a man who left her. She confided to her friend, Augustina, who enlisted the help of an old African man named Tata Nicholas to provide Isabel with a remedy to bring her lover back to her. Okay. Tatas asked her for some money, three to six reales, she couldn't really confirm how much, Mm -hmm. as well as three hairs from her privates and a lump of sugar. What's with the pubic hair and chocolate, man? I just... It's sex magic. (sighs) It's so gross. After returning a few days later, Tata gave Isabel a very foul-smelling yellow powder wrapped in paper. He instructed her to smear some of it on her lover's clothing or body and keep the rest of it with her. The powder was so foul-smelling that even after she took it home and stuck it under her table, her lover was able to smell it immediately when he came to see her and scolded her for using it, even though she did smear some on his shirt sleeves. I'd be so mad. I'd be like, what are you doing? <sighs> That's disgusting. Mm-hmm. After this, Isabel avoided Augustina and Tata for some nine years. After Tata was dead, she approached Augustina once again and asked Augustina's husband to swear at her wedding that she had not been married. So she went on to marry this lover. Mm-hmm. A month later, when she came to visit at Christmas... Augustina gave Isabel a bundle to carry with her that consisted of two little sticks to keep Isabel's new husband from leaving her. Even though she insisted she did not need them, she took it home and hid it away in a box. The bundle also contained a foul smell, but not as bad as the powder that Tata had given to her years prior. Okay. Isabel often tried to destroy the bundle, moving it to another room, then under her bed, but every time she tried to dispose of it, someone was in the house. It wasn't until the day before she confessed that she was finally able to take the whole thing and burn it. I guess, like, her mother lived with her as well, so I'm assuming there were a lot of people yeah. that lived in her house. Yeah, and so she was. She never had a moment to take the time to burn it. Mm-hmm. Because that would, that would be time-consuming as well. Like, even if you were to burn it, it'd be like, what are you burning? <laughs> well, not only that, but if... You're carrying it. People are going to be like, what's that? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Isabel ran into Augustina's husband one day in the plaza, and he told her how well she got along as a midwife and healer, even going so far as being able to remove spiderwebs and worms from the bodies of those who had been bewitched. She could remove worms and spiders? Apparently from people's bodies, yes. Like dead bodies? I'm assuming live ones. Yeah. Which is gross Did she, and horrifying. Is she the mother of penicillin? <laughs> I don't know, but it's gross. That's crazy. The last time that Isabel saw Augustina, an indigenous person was being brought to her to be cured. Okay. Two months after Isabel visited the Holy Office, Marta Picon, an unmarried 21-year-old maid from Oaxaca, came to denounce Augustina as well. She had gotten to know her while working for her as a seamstress. She witnessed Augustina selling love magic, selling hummingbirds and powders to attract men. Augustina would acquire these items from indigenous men and women. Augustina confided in Marta that she had learned her craft from a woman named Maria de los Rios, who had been apprehended Mm -hmm. by the Holy Office. 
That's not good. Now I'm going to stop here for a minute and explain the hummingbird thing. So apparently hummingbirds were a very powerful symbol of love and sexuality. So they were considered a powerful love talisman, whether that meant they were alive or if you had their bones or if you had one of their eggs. So having some part of a hummingbird was considered a good luck talisman, especially when it came to matters of love. Interesting. Because I I wonder if that's still a common theme down in in South South America or Latin America, because that's from in our area right now that I don't really associate hummingbirds with love. Yeah. So I don't know, but it does come up again later on, but... Okay. Is that what the little bones were in the package? Mm -hmm. It was hummingbird Hummingbird bones, yeah. Which I thought was extremely interesting. Yeah. Also in 1709, an elderly Spanish horseshoer named Lorenzo Martinez Montanas from Mexico City visited the tribunal to denounce Bonifacia Miranda, an unmarried mestiza who dressed like a Spanish woman and had been his mistress. When asked why he felt she had committed an act of witchcraft... He stated that she had given him things in his hot chocolate, and six years prior, he had felt a hair across his penis, after which he became impotent with his wife. And yet three years later, he was able to have intercourse with Bonifacia without any problem. Yeah. Interesting. He felt a hair on his penis and suddenly it didn't work. Yep. So he was alleging that she, like, tied him or bound him to her using some Mm. of his body hair. He also brought with him a letter corroborated by five witnesses regarding his two-year relationship with her, during which they had a daughter. He wanted to end their affair and have his child baptized, choosing to be Bonificia's compadre, or co-godparent, under which, by church law, they would be forbidden from having sex with one another because they would be considered spiritual family. Can't have spiritual incest. Interesting. Okay. Bonifacia was so angered by this that she wished death upon his sick wife and refused to untie him from her with her sex magic. I see. So I don't know if that meant he was now impotent again because he was back with his wife. I don't know. I wonder if he couldn't have sex with his wife because his wife was sick and he wanted an excuse to not be with her. I don't know, because it didn't say what she was sick with. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In 1715, an elderly woman named Magdalena de la Mata went before the tribunal in San Juan del Rio to denounce herself for purchasing a remedy to tame her husband from an indigenous woman. Beatrice, the indigenous woman, gave her an herb she could use on her husband to prevent him from being a womanizer. Magdalena had gone to her after her husband, Augustin de la Cruz Mancilla, trigger warning, had beat her so badly that he had caused her to bleed. Okay. Beatrice went on to tell Magdalena how she could make a ligature that would make her husband impotent. Wouldn't that make him angrier? It would keep him from cheating on her. Because he was being a womanizer as well as being physically abusive to her. Yeah, I just... Yeah. Okay. She was to take an egg, pierce it with a straw, put in some of her husband's pubic hairs, then bury the egg in the ground where her husband urinated. Okay. 
Magdalena did so, and she even put some of her husband's urine on top of it. Gross. I know. But the following day, she dug it up and threw it away because she was so overcome by guilt for committing such a ludicrous act, which is part of why she went before the tribunal. She was like, I did this thing. It's ridiculous. It was crazy. It was crazy. I feel so bad about it. I just need to repent. In 1716, Gertrudis Antonia del Castillo, who was married to an indigenous man, denounced her friend and neighbor, Luciana, after she had tried to give her water prepared with cemetery dirt to prevent Gertrudis's husband from beating her. No, yeah. none of that. None of it. Gertrudis refused to take it the three times that it was offered to her, and Luciana asked her for the tails of three large rats, which she provided. Ew. Luciana then gave Gertrudis one of the tails with a string of agave fiber attached to it and instructed her to attach it to her husband's headboard with some of his own hair to prevent him from cheating on her with other women. In order for Gertrudis to attract other men, she instructed her to use water that she had bathed her armpits and privates with mixed with chocolate. I really don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> uh, I don't understand the bath water thing. Like, that's just that's yeah. gross. Or the cemetery dirt water. Yeah. Luciana insisted that these worked, as she had used them on her own husband with great success. Ew. This case <laughs> was hard for the tribunal because they were not told if Luciana was indigenous. And under the law, if she was, they could not persecute her. Yeah, that's true. In 1740, a case was brought before the tribunal of Guadalajara that of a Spanish woman named Maria Antonia Gallegos, a widow that was searching for her husband. She stated that eight years earlier, she had rifled through the clothing of a drunken mulatto who had fallen asleep in her home. Inside, she found a bundle in which was the skeleton of a hummingbird. After showing it to her mother, she was told that the hummingbird was used to attract men and money as well as ward off evil. Maria had wanted to keep the bundle, but her mother burned it the next day. Two years later, she and her sister-in-law went in search of a hummingbird nest and took two little eggs from it. They each wore them about their necks until one broke and the other was lost. Maria was interested in learning how to attract men and had heard that women would serve water in which she had washed her privates to an unmarried man to get his attention. Mm -hmm. She also heard from a sorceress that she could take a leech, place it upon her leg, then give it, with the blood, to the man to drink. Why? Y'all, what? No. No. This is why people just would die. Yep. <laughs> like the amount of contaminants. I can't. She confessed to the tribunal that she had done both. That's horrifying. Yeah. Her mother even turned to witchcraft at one time when she feared her husband would stray during a trip to Mexico City. Her mother had served him a remedy that included menstrual blood and a few hairs from her privates mixed with hot chocolate. I hate all of this. They're ruining the indigenous drink. Like it was Mm -hmm. so lovely and had like honey and flowers and now has pubes and bones and like leeches. Yep. Stop. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Stop. 
These cases show just how easy it was for African and mulatto women to be brought before the inquisitors under charges of witchcraft. Yet despite this, they had still used their knowledge of healing to aid those in their communities, knowing full well that at any time some of those very people they were helping could turn on them and report them to the Inquisition. Yeah. So they're focusing on their their one kind of weak spot mm-hmm. during their witchcraft mm-hmm. or healing. Despite this, it shows just how necessary folk healers were to the communities in New Spain. Mm-hmm. Licensed physicians were few and far between in colonial Latin America, so unlicensed and unsanctioned healers, whether that be African, mulata, indigenous, or other, were often the primary physicians in their ethnic communities, which meant that even Spaniards would take advantage of their services if they lived in more rural communities. That makes sense. And it wasn't just physical ailments that these women would assist with. They often served a large number of female Spanish women who were trying to prevent their husbands from being physically and verbally abusive towards them. So sad. Or to cheat, to not cheat on them. Yep, or to not cheat on them. One thing we must also keep in mind is the fact that once a woman was married, regardless of her social status, she lost almost all of her legal rights, essentially becoming her husband's property. Why do you think so many of the instances of witchcraft involving women involved women seeking ways to get their husbands to stop abusing them? Yeah, that's awful. And could you imagine, too, like, say say you just became free and then you were married to somebody who was abusive. Like, it mm-hmm. would just never end. Not only that, but men were allowed to have illicit affairs with little to no, no consequences. Yeah, what did God think of that? And the idea of separation for unhappy women was one that many could not entertain, let alone women who were being physically abused. Like, how are they going to be able to leave their abuser? Yeah. So what what else is there to do than to try to get convince them to stop hitting them by, like, making them a drink? Yep. So you may be wondering why, unlike in last week's episode, none of these women and men were put to death for their supposed crimes of witchcraft. Because none of them were. None of the ones that I told you about were put to death. That's good. Ruth Behar sums it up best in the opening paragraph of her paper, Sex and Sin, Witchcraft and the Devil in Late Colonial Mexico. Quote, In Mexico, as in Spain, the Inquisition was far less severe than legend would have it showing little concern to eradicate magic and witchcraft among common people or to convict and burn them for their heterodox beliefs. Hearing cases of witchcraft, the inquisitors treated them as a religious problem that could be resolved through confession and absolution. Perhaps because of this lenient stance or relative absence of persecution, witchcraft accusations and confessions in Mexico rarely went beyond simple acts of maleficia associated with sexuality and marriage. So like acts of malicious mm-hmm. witchcraft. The fact that so many people voluntarily confessed their involvement in witchcraft and magic and then followed their priest's direction to denounce themselves to the holy office points to an interiorization of inquisitorial ideas, end quote. So basically, each person kind of on their own realized that what they were doing wasn't okay and were trying to do yeah. their best to denounce that in order to do the right thing. thing. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of the first form of confession in that way. Mm -hmm. 
just a very public and humbling form of confession. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the cases that were brought before the tribunal, they were like, why are you even bringing this to us? Like, you could have just confessed to your local priest and you would have been fine. Like, we don't need to know this. Aww. Like, it's it's fine. Like, just say some Hail Marys yeah. and you're fine. But some of I them, that, but like, you know, they were so fearful and freaking out so much about it. They're like, oh, I have to go to the Holy Office. I have to go to Mexico City. Right. Because, I mean, with some people, if you're abused your entire life, enslaved for most of your life, and then abused for the rest of it, I, heaven is the only thing you can look forward to. So if that's going to be taken away because you made one bad decision on putting your pubes in a drink, um, I'd be running too and being like, sorry, 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 please. Yep. I take it back, take it back. Like, I, I get that, especially too with, with the, the people that were often accused are people that like don't belong. Mm -hmm. And so they're trying to do something, I, I think, by getting those verdicts and stuff too that can almost incorporate them into the community better afterwards because mm -hmm. they fixed it. They're no longer, they're less othered in a way too. Mm -hmm. That could be totally, totally, totally wrong. But I feel like for the majority, it's the majority of the population, but it's also like the most judged, like African women, free or not, mulatto women, free or not. Yeah, because you're never really free. <laughs> Fun fact: it's not quite the same. <laughs> Check chocolate, and putting a bird on it didn't fix it. <laughs> yeah, I, I I'm actually curious to know if if any of like our Latin American listeners like are hummingbirds still considered like a sign of love? Because I've never I've never heard that before. Yeah, that'd be interesting to know. And they'd be like, "Duh, idiot! Of course it is. It's on like every card." <laughs> Yeah, okay, cool. Thanks. <laughs> Lauren DeMolo vanished without a trace on June 19th. Police called DeMolo's disappearance suspicious. Lauren DeMolo was last seen more than a week ago at her Cape Coral apartment, and police believe she's in danger. Where is Lauren DeMolo? You don't really hear these stories in such a beautiful town. You feel like your whole world is safe. This is a story that needs to be told because this story needs an ending. Her message said, I don't know what to do. I need to get out of this situation. I need help. Maybe somebody really was after her. And I said, the girl you're supposedly in love with and engaged to has not been home and is missing. And you're not gonna be there or go looking for her. I said, I got a big problem with all of this. Unexpected twists and turns fuel a community-wide search to bring Lauren home. But Lauren is still missing, and nobody's talking. I do believe she will be found. I really do believe that justice will be served. A lot of people know exactly what happened. There are so many puzzle pieces here that you can't figure out what happened. Someone is responsible. Someone is complicit. I'm not going to stop until I find out what happened to my daughter. I'm Hillary Wadsworth. And I'm Caitlin Boddy. Join us as we seek to find out what really happened to Lauren DeMolo. Complicit is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
So this week's podcast plug is the Complicit Podcast. Complicit is a true crime podcast that dives deep into the active investigation of now 30-year-old Lauren DeMolo. She vanished from her home in Cape Coral, Florida on June 19th, 2020, and has not been seen or heard from since. Complicit is written and produced by Caitlin and Hillary. Not only that, but it's been nominated for and won several awards. Nice. Give it a listen. We'll have a link in the show notes. And you're going to, you might have to use Google for this week's listener question. Okay. It comes from Sean from Shots and Thoughts and Reddit on Wiki. And he wants to know what foods from the 1800s could be brought back to modern day and be successful again. Okay. I found this one that actually sounds like it'd be pretty good. It's called Colonial Syllabub. Okay. And it's, it's a milkshake-like drink that first emerged in the 1500s and it was it became a kind of a household staple until the 18th century or the 19th century. So it was a frothy beverage made of whipped cream, sugar, and wine or brandy. Okay. So it was kind of similar to eggnog mm-hmm. and it was first created because wine is kind of like a really it was considered a very expensive alcoholic beverage mm-hmm. cuz for a long time we weren't able to produce the right wine grapes in America. That makes sense. And so in order to make this wine stretch out longer, you would make it into these milkshake-like drink so you could enjoy it for longer. Yeah. Amish oatmeal pie. Apparently... What is that? During the Civil War, many ingredients were in short supply due to the conflict. During this time, nuts and dried fruit were in short supply. And so they made this pie using oats... To hit the spot without any of those hard-to-get ingredients. It's like pecan pie, but with oh. oats. That would be a hit for all mm-hmm. you oat milk lovers out there. Have some oatmeal pie <laughs> with your oat milk latte with chocolate. So much oats. And flowers. And flowers. And saffron. 19 pioneer recipes that survived the Oregon Trail. What? Whoa. Oh, yeah, Johnny Cakes. Those still exist. Mm-hmm. A molasses stack cake. Oh, it's just like a pancake. It's like it's like a crepe cake, but with pancakes. Lacy edged corn cakes. Fancy. Buffalo jerky. There you go, keto. You're welcome. <laughs> Nothing like some bison jerky. Okay. It says Oregon Trail breakfast cornmeal mush. And I thought it said meth. And I was like, wait a minute. Oregon Trail meth? <laughs> They're just tweaking out the whole way. <laughs> That's how they cross the river. <laughs> they just fed everybody, including the ox, the mess. <laughs> Martha, get the Let's meth. ford this river. <laughs> Martha, get the ox meth out. We gotta, we gotta ford this river. Let's get them going at a grueling pace. Let's do something good. Something good. What is something good that happened? I get to go visit... Our parents and hang out with them. Willie and Chief got to run around in the backyard and play in the snow. And Chief was so excited in general about all of it that he spins. So Mm -hmm. he spins in really tight circles when he's really excited and he knows he can't run long distances because he just loves to Mm -hmm. run. And so whenever we were going to take them outside... 
he would like spin four times in the kitchen because he knows he can't jump on the door. And then when he'd get into like that back porch, he'd spin twice because it's less distance. And he'd like, he like hit the table once <laughs> doing the spins and like a bit of excitement. So it was just kind of nice to do something with the dogs. And they're, they have a really curmudgeon-y cat who like she tries to run the house and she gets really upset if anything is different. And so she would be in a dead sleep, like deep, deep, deep sleep on the couch. And mm. my two dogs would be playing tug of war with something. And she'd wake up hearing their growls and she'd just beat the crap out of Chief. She'd just wake up and she'd be like, and like pause up and then she'd just like whoop on him. And I don't, she didn't use her claws, but she just like, she did it a couple of times where she just like woke up and whoop just beat him and then like he has a crate beca because he's still a puppy you have to kind of force a nap like there's a dog bed but sometimes he still can't like he can't relax in the dog bed like he mm -hmm. can his crate so we put a bunch of like plushy blankets in there and he, he sleeps in it and I guess when I went to go get groceries with dad Macy <laughs> cornered him inside the crate because the crate door was open <laughs> and she like took up the entire crate and he was like forced against the back of it and, he, and this poor dog does not bark like he doesn't bark and it, when he does bark it sounds like a, an alarm going off like a like you know <laughs> so mom didn't notice for a long time and then she finally like coaxed him to come out and Macy slept in there the rest of the night like, <laughs> to assert her dominance. She's so, such a bitch. She's so mean. She's such a mean cat. And like Chief desperately wanted her to like him because like even when she'd be hitting him and stuff, his tail would be wagging furiously. Like he was so excited. That she was acknowledging him, like, thank you so much, I love that, please hit me again. <laughs> like, that was great, thanks, be my friend. So that was just really Aww. nice, because Chief, he has a hard time enjoying that space, because he's so, he's normally, like, such a puppy that he, you know how when kids try so hard to be good that they be, they're bad? Mm -hmm. You know, like, they're, they're just so excited that they start, like, messing things up. That's kind of what Chief does. Mm -hmm. And so I would feel bad because he'd have to go into timeout because he broke something and bit someone and, like, dug up a frog and ate it and, like, <laughs> you know, do, like, all these really crazy things. And so this weekend he was able to actually, like, listen to everybody and he was able to enjoy himself. And the crate was used for just naps. Like, it wasn't used as like a timeout space it was used as like a nice go take a nap you're a toddler please go take a nap and then like he came out and was totally fine so it was really nice what about you what's your good thing um so last night instead of working on show notes or my research for this episode i came up with a rough itinerary for our summer vacation this year nice so where are you going we want to go through North Dakota, Montana, hit Yellowstone National Park, and then kind of go back through Wyoming and South Dakota on the way back. Nice. So we would hit Yellowstone, Hell's Half Acre, Mount Rushmore, and the Badlands. Nice. 
Is Mount Rushmore close to the Black Hills? Yes. Nice. And it's actually a lot closer to the Badlands than I thought it was. Nice. It's like an hour and a half away. That's something like that. Like it's wow. <laughs> they're like much closer together than I thought they were. Cool. So oh, we're gonna go to the Devil's Tower too, which is like right on the border of Wyoming and South Dakota. So awesome. Yeah, I looked that up and I tried to like plan out based off the drive time and factoring in like time we would stop and things like that, like where we should stay mm-hmm. during the trip and found like some Airbnbs that I put on like this Google Doc that I shared with Thomas. Like, let's look at this together later and figure out if this is what we want to do mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And then we can start getting things booked. And some of the places I found to stay were like really cool. Nice. So Good. I hope you, I hope you can solidify that soon. When would you be going? Yeah. Not to geolocate you or anything? In midsummer. Nice. So, so it's not too hot, too intense of a... No, well, that it's going to be hot be. as balls. It's going to be, be hot as intense. balls. Yeah. So, But we like to sweat. That's us. Nice. I like to punish myself. Anyway, shall we? We shall. You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at yieldcrimepod and on Instagram and Facebook at yieldcrimepodcast. We are on YouTube. Subscribe. Subscribe. That'd be nice. Hit that. Check out our check out our playlist. Thing. Hit hit all of the things. Slap that bell. I sound so old. <laughs> you can send us something in the mail. I've been checking our PO box and it's been very ronery. You can yeah. mail us at Yield Crime Podcast, PO Box three four one, Wyoming, Minnesota five five zero nine two. The address is also in the show notes. If you're like, I can't write that down because I'm driving, and that's not safe. <laughs> Yeah, please you don't. can email us at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Submit your questions, story ideas. If you're a podcast and you want to do a promo swap, reach out to us. Mm-hmm. We're always game for that. A great way to support the show would be to leave a five-star rating and review. Mm-hmm. It's a great way to kind of help increase our reach without, I don't know, to just help us increase our reach. So you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods, and you can also leave a rating on Spotify. And this week's review comes from Oklahoma Side. Hi, Stacy, from Apple Podcasts. And she says, old but new to me. I love Yield Crime po- Podcast. Most of the stories I've never heard before, and it is well-researched and entertaining. Thanks, Dr. Stacy. That's awesome. Thank you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do so with a one-time donation on Buy Me a Coffee. You can also join our Patreon for as low as a dollar a month. And if you uh, sign up at one of the higher tiers, you can join our friends Aaron and Justin. Nice. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you. You can also purchase some of our merch on our Redbubble store at or at TeePublic. And on that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime.